Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. and Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, I mentioned last week that um, we were given some practical things that we can do in our life, the way that we are to walk out our worthy walk, and that is by the old man, which should have already been crucified and our new man put on, but we've got to renew our mind. And that's really the basis, the premise as believers is now that we are in Christ Jesus is learning how to act differently because he is enabling us to not look like the world, or as Paul says, to walk as the Gentiles walk. And so there should be this difference, this transformation that happens in us. Now we're going to get to um, these sort of practical examples of things. I don't believe this list is exhaustive of the things that we ought to do now that we're in Christ, but some examples of what we should be doing, the kinds of things that should be a distinguishing mark on our lives. Verse 25, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. Now, first off, who is our neighbor? Do you remember there was a lawyer that was trying to trap Jesus? And he said, Teacher, what is the greatest command? And he says that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he says, you've answered rightly. He said, but who is our neighbor? And Jesus went on to tell a parable about a man that was robbed on the side of a road, and the Pharisees walked around his body, would not help him. And there was a Sadducee or a priest that walked around the other side. And there was this old cartoon, I'll never forget it. As a little kid, I, I couldn't even tell you what program it was on. But I, I can just picture this guy girding up his loins and he stepped real big to another path that was way in the distance. And I have this image in my head of being so 
afraid of helping your neighbor or so unafraid of being seen of doing the right thing that you actually go into the distance. And this is the, the picture Jesus was sharing of a parable and then this good Samaritan came along and what did he did, do? He bandaged up the man's womb. He took him over to an inn. He cared for him and said, if there, it goes over this cost, I'll come back and make up the difference. Jesus says, your neighbor is the very person that, you should, that you're normally hating. See, there was somebody that is beaten up and yet the world, the Samaritan in this picture, was the one who actually took this person in and treated him with love and dignity and respect. And so I would argue that, yes, in this context, certainly the members of our body are certainly other brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, but this extension of not speaking a falsehood really also includes the world, those that we um, may, the world may look at and see, oh, well, we know we're not obligated to care for them. They're not of the same kind. They, you know, they look different. They're of a different culture. They're of a different denomination. They're not in our family, whatever. The list is huge. But Jesus is saying, to the degree that you love on those neighbors, you're really fulfilling the law. That's what the point of Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 10. You can go read it for yourself. Now, in this context, we're talking about words that are coming out of our mouth. Paul is exhorting us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, he says, the Lord is affirming this that we ought not speak a lie or a falsehood. The Greek word is pseudo, like pseudonym, a false or fake name. Oftentimes, writers will write under a pseudonym, and it's a false name so that they can mask their identity for one reason or another. He's saying, speak nothing hidden, speak nothing false, speak nothing of a lie that would come out of your mouth. And we should not be surprised that this is some sort of um, groundbreaking change that should happen in the life of the believer for those of you that would know the Ten Commandments back in Exodus chapter 20, what is number nine? Thou shall not bear false witness. So it was forbidden by God all the way back in the Old Testament. Okay, this is nothing new. He's, Paul is re-emphasizing the motive and the reason for it. These are things that you ought to do to make a distinguishing mark on your life. Now, as Christians, I think we understand, most, most of us understand, you know, lying is it's not good. I have young children at home. I think they do pretty well, but there's always a struggle, especially you parents. You understand children, um, you know, they test waters and they're learning. Well, daddy does not allow lying. That is, there's, there's two things that are, you'll, you'll make dad pretty angry quick. That is if I catch you in a lie, and that's if disrespect toward me or Brittany. And I think the kids are starting to understand and get it. I don't know that I've trapped them. I'm not, not that I'm specifically trying to trap them. That sounds really evil, doesn't it? I don't know that I've caught them in many lies, but there's something fundamental inside of us. There's this fleshly desire. It's so easy to get caught up in saying the wrong thing to hide our own sin. We see this all the way back in the garden with the fall of man. There was this blame game that comes, and then, you know, Cain and Abel, Cain's trying to hide this sin, and while they didn't directly lie, they didn't really offer the full truth, and there was this hidden lie, and so we as Christians understand lying is bad, God hates it, right? But is white lies. You may have heard that term. How many of you heard of a term, white lie, right? 
I- is that okay? Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to protect that person. Well, isn't that really what a white lie is? It's really just a lie that we deem necessary to keep from hurting someone's feelings, right? Well, let me tell you, the Bible isn't really interested in keeping from hurting people's feelings. Brace yourselves. I hear you, husbands. I know when she asks you, how does that dress make her look? She looks absolutely stunning, no question about it. I can't tell if pastor's serious right now. Are we not supposed to answer that way? You see, there is a real problem here. The problem is that those that would believe a white lie is necessary are really justifying uh, a means to an end. They're, they're, They're justifying that I deem this as helpful, again, parenthetical statement here, according to your own tainted view of sin, right? What is righteous, what is good, what is sinful. And you're deeming a statement saying, well, you know, the ends justify the means here. But God is perfect and holy. And he has a different standard. You know, we have this idea that as long as we're doing good, that it's according to our own corrupted view of um, what sin is, then it's justified. So, is it a sin? Well, I want to just give you a couple scriptures. Proverbs twelve twenty two, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 6, There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. A false witness who utters lies. Proverbs twenty four twenty eight. Do not deceive with your lips. Colossians three. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Clear, right? Let's practice. How big was that fish you caught? Show me. Was it though? Those little exaggerations which you don't intend harm. Is that truth? Mm, Okay. Now, white lies are often told to, quote-unquote, preserve the peace, as if telling the truth might break peace. What a backward argument. You see, the Bible presents truth and peace as existing together. As long as we are telling truth in love, that's what we see in verse 15. We have the duty and obligation as believers, not just to teach the truth, but to teach the truth or to tell the truth in love. Now, it's not obviously just white lies that are forbidden here. Um, I want you to see where lies even come from before we move on. Turn to John chapter 8 this morning. We're going to keep your finger in Ephesians. We're, of course, going back. John chapter 8, I want you to see these verses for yourself, be reminded of them. You probably are familiar with them, have heard them, but let's read them together. Verse 44 of John 8 says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Doesn't sound like a very good father, does it? And does not stand in the truth. He does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth. Say, no truth truth. 
in him. There's none. You heard something from the devil? Guess what? It's not true. There is no truth. I take the Bible to be literal until the Bible tells me otherwise. There is no truth in the devil. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar. That's his identity. God is, just for, you know, contrasting here, God is healer. He's provider. He's lover. He's grace. He's life. He's truth. Satan is lies. For he is the father of lies. He is the daddy of them all. You hear a lie, whether it comes from the devil, a demon, your coworker, your boss, your spouse, your child, guess where it comes from? He's the father of it. All of them. We're heaping all the lies on Satan. That's, that's what the Bible tells. Verse 45. But because I speak truth, this is Jesus talking, you do not believe me. Now, I, just want, I, read, I throw that verse in there because I want you to understand that Jesus can only speak truth. He is truth. Jesus is the way the truth, the life. Jesus equals truth. Satan equals lies. There is no room in the life of any believer to speak a falsehood, even in the so-called context of keeping peace in the house. Now, does this mean that we are supposed to say everything that we know to everyone? No. Telling the truth is not the same thing as blabbing your mouth. When someone asks you to keep a secret or to keep something quiet, there is a legitimate need for something to be in confidence. It is better to say to that person, I am not authorized or I do not feel comfortable speaking about that matter with you, than it is to lie and cover up. Verse 26, move it along. Be angry and do not sin. You know, the new man, I don't know about yours, mine gets angry from time to time. I've got children, I've got a wife, I've got problems. I get angry. But that new man must not sin. And here's this whole contemporary idea that, well, I didn't sin, so it's okay to be angry, and that's a bit going bonkers and too far to me. Hang with me. This verse is not encouraging sin as if that phrase is a standalone. It says, oh, look, I'm exhorted to be angry. As if the more angry you are, the better Christian you're being. Be angry, believer, be angry. No, there's, there's context here, and we have to understand it's allowing for anger, but it's not encouraging that behavior. It's allowing for anger as long as we do not sin. It is not encouraging us to be angry as much as we want. Now, Paul is saying that if you're going to get mad, do it in a way that keeps you from losing your cool and making Christ look bad. James 1, 19 and 20 says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. There you have it. It does not make you a better Christian to be angry. Let's not twist that phrase out of context. Now, I want to be clear here. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. 
But if we are not careful, anger can lead us into sin quite easily. The Passion Translation translates the first part of that verse this way. Do not let the passion of your emotions lead you to sin. The rest of the verse in 27, we have, it does, or I have in New America Center, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Again, the Passion Translation says, don't let anger control you or be fuel for revenge, not even for a day. Don't give the slanderous accuser, the devil, an opportunity to manipulate you. Now, the devil here, the word really is slanderer. That's what he is. That's another identity mark of the devil. He is the slanderer. And I want to sort of share a personal life experience that happened to me a few years back. Don't ask me what it, when it was or what it was about. All I know is that I was angry at my wife for something. I'm sure I was wrong, and I'm sure I apologized because I'm a husband, and that's what always happens, right? <laughs> I remember digging my feet in the ground. I was right about whatever it was, and I was not going to be the first one to apologize because I was right, and she owed me an apology. We went to bed. I went to bed angry, quite angry. I did not sleep a wink that night. And I learned something. I knew this verse, but there was, oh, I was just letting that fester. It just felt so good, didn't it? Mm, She deserved my wrath in my mind. That night, I tossed and turned. I should have probably woken her up and apologized and made my peace. But I didn't. I let it fester all night long. I deserved it. She was wrong, of course. You know, there's a practical part of this verse is that when you get rid of your anger and give it to God, you will sleep better, you will have a more joyful life, and you will live with a whole lot less stress. But I think this verse also is teaching us something more fundamental, that this anger, if we let it to fester, get it to fester, it can be our ruin. It will get into your spirit, man. It will begin to destroy you. I have, I've mentioned this before. I know you probably know some people, some individuals, hopefully not related to you. Hopefully I'm not, you know, you feel like I'm talking to you because I'm not. But I've met people that each and every year they get older, it seems like the more grumpy they get. A lot of times there's unresolved unforgiveness. There's unforgiveness in their life and it turns into bitterness and it just begins to tear them up. And you know what? You just become this grumpy old man or woman. And you're not pleasant to be around, you know? I don't know if you have any family members like that. I'm not going to throw anyone in my family under the bus, but I just want you to know I've met some people like that. Anger will absolutely lead us down a road of despair always looking to blame and destroy others for their actions and their words against us. And here's the problem, is that we're coupled here with this idea of being anger and giving the devil an opportunity. He's saying, the world is going to look at you the way you act as different. And if they see you as someone who can't control your emotions and your anger, they're not even going to want to be around you. They're going to call you a hypocrite. We hear that oftentimes in the church, right? Oh, look at that pastor. Just look at him. Bob, he can't even control himself. Why on earth would I want to go to a church like that? See, the world is looking at us. 
The world has got their eyes on us. And so it's much more than just sleeping good at night, which it is that. But it's that the world would see Jesus in us. And when we hold on to anger, bitterness, hear me out. I want you to know I'm sitting figuratively in the front row. This is talking to me. I've thrown things. I've yelled. I've screamed. I, too, am a sinner saved by grace. But my flesh, you know, even though as weak as it is, the Spirit is willing. And one day, by the grace of God, I'm going to look back at my life, and I believe this is going to be an area in my life that He's helped me to master for the world to see Jesus. Don't give Him an opportunity. Don't give Him an inch. The devil will take a mile. Don't give him a second, he'll take a day. Don't give him a pound, he'll take a ton. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I would like him to take some pounds. Well, that's not what I mean. Now, I don't want to fail to mention so-called righteous anger of Jesus. Many Christians will point at that and attempt to justify their own anger and say, well, Jesus was angry, so I get to be angry. Well, first of all, Jesus was God. He's perfect, he's holy, and we are imperfect. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, by the grace of Christ, we stand justified in his sight, but we have not been glorified. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. So when there's something that's egregious that comes to light, yes, you can be angry, but make sure that you're doing it through the lens of the gospel and through the Holy Spirit guiding your spirit man and being controlled under his influence and not just your own emotions. Jesus flipped some tables. You know what? I think sometimes we're looking to justify our own actions because of what Jesus did. Well, Jesus, again, as God, and you know, very seldom do we have pure motives for our anger. It's usually because we didn't get our way or somebody didn't respect us the right way or we didn't get the attention that we deserved, and so we get angry. But if you must be angry, be angry at the sin and not at the sinner. Because even if your anger is righteously justified on occasion, the point of failure becomes when you enter into sin is when you act in an ungodly manner. Jesus set the example. Sure, he flipped some tables, but he did it and he was justified. So let's just be careful for our motivation in doing it. Verse 28. Let's do one more. He who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor performing with his own hands what is good. There was a father who was complaining to the school board about his elementary child's pencils always going missing from his pencil box. Made a lot of complaints and finally made, was getting all the parents bent out of shape at one of the school board meetings. And the principal spoke up and said, I'll replace the pencils myself. He said, it's not the cost of the pencils I'm worried about. It's the principle of the matter. I get those from my work. So one of you got it. Thanks, Patty. <laughs> I know, it's a bad joke. <laughs> God wants us to work, to work for what we have. What is God's thoughts on welfare? Well, we talked about this last fall. I want you to know that the Bible does not talk about Social Security, does not talk about food stamps, does not talk about Medicare. Do you know, Captain John Smith, when he, they came over, they settled in Jamestown, they had a very hard time. 
And he made a rule. He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Sounds pretty simple, right? That everyone must pull their own weight in the colony because there was about to be starvation. But you know what? It is simple because it's biblical. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 say, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Now perhaps this is an area you feel you can be self-righteous about. Okay, I get it. I work. I work hard. I work six days a week. I work 12 hours a day. Now there happens to be somebody in this church that was running, uh, they were in the lab working last night till 3 a.m., right? Pastor, don't talk to me about this. I work plenty. Next verse so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. That's the end of verse 28. You see, God does not only want us to not be lazy, to be moochers, to be leeches on society. He wants us to work so that we can be a blessing to others. You mean give my stuff away? No, I mean that you give away God's stuff. That our generosity would be that distinguishing mark of the believer. Now remember, we're talking about not walking as the Gentiles do, but walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called. See, the Proverbs 31 woman extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. Jesus said, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. Acts 20, 35, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Galatians six ten. so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Give to others, that doesn't sound very American. We're celebrating 4th of July today, right? Independence Day, the American dream. We can come, it doesn't matter what you look like, what religion you are, you can come to the United States and you can start your own business and you can succeed and do well just by the hard work, right? Keep your stuff. That's the American dream. Build up some wealth. Give it to your kids and they get to start it over and do the same cycle over and over, right? That's the dream. Well, you know what? That's not very biblical. Our flesh doesn't want us, others to mooch off of us because we've worked hard for it. We feel like we deserve it. But see, it needs to change by the renewing of our mind that really none of it is ours to begin with. That God has blessed us with everything we have. Your car, your house, all of it's His. Put your finances, renew your mind, put your finances in his hands and say, God, thank you that I have food on my table today. What should I do with it? And when you have that attitude of gratitude of all that God has given to you, it becomes a whole lot easier to lend it out. Ask ask the rich people. It doesn't get easier to give away their stuff the more money you have. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about it. One more passage. Luke, Luke chapter 6. Turn there this morning. Luke chapter 6. We'll close out in a couple minutes. Let 
Let's look down at verse 30. This is in um, Luke's summary of one of Jesus' sermons. See, we're skipping through the Beatitudes in verses 20 down, but verse 30 says, Give, picking up in the middle of a thought, give to everyone who asks of you, Jesus says, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Following says, it's not hard to love the people that love you. The real distinguishing mark is going to be what? Loving those that don't. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Now we do that with interest, don't we? That's a whole other matter. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. and Your reward will be great and you will be Sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. This puts into perspective, if you didn't catch it, why we give. God sent his only son to you. You are on your way to hell in a handbasket. And God said, I'm going to give my only. And it's because of that salvation that we have in the name of Jesus Christ that we should therefore do the same to the world that generosity that he extended to us. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, verse 36. Do not judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. Now this is not talking about tithe. This is talking about giving to the needy and the poor. This is expression. This is dialogue talking really about the wheat that was being measured out in the way that they weighed it out. And, and if they were generous, they would give it to you and fill up your bag or your container and be heaping and flowing over. In the same way, we ought to be generous to the world, not just giving them our, our little bits, our leftovers. Food pantries say, we're digging in the back of the food pantry looking for that can that's like a year and a half old, right? Well, I guess I haven't used that in a while. I could give that away. It's saying give out of good measure. Give your best. Give, give all of it to them, and then it's going to return to you in that same way, not just from your extras, the same way that we tithe. The first goes to Christ, doesn't it? Should. When you get your paycheck, the very first 10% is God's. Don't even think about where it can go. When you're giving to the needy, it's not your, the scarpings that fall off the table. It's, it's I want to give them the very best. I want to make a meal for them. I'm going to make them my favorite lasagna recipe. I'm going to drop it by their door. That's what Christ is teaching us to do. Now, I recently heard talking about work and working for the things that we have so that we can be a blessing. I'm going to transition now to why we're working and those, this whole idea of um, do we really keep working forever? I heard Louis recently talk about retirement and how it's not found in the Bible. I'm not here to make anyone feel bad, but I absolutely agree with him. It's not found in the Bible. It's not that I think retirement is evil and wrong or bad, but I would like to propose to us that we think differently about it. Now, I'm hearing some chuckles. I don't want to speak on behalf of Louis, but 
he probably wasn't totally serious about it. I'm sure there's an age where, you know, your body is no longer willing. But I want us to think about this, the concept, and why retirement, which is really just a Western thing, and why it could be wrong, considered wrong. First and foremost, work was invented by God the Father. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God created man that he would cultivate and keep the garden. That is pre-fall. Before the disobedience of Adam, he was created to keep and cultivate. So I say again, work is invented by God. It is a good design. He created all of creation. He looked over everything. He said, it is very good. That means that the whole concept of man keeping the garden was very good. Now, yes, it is true that part of the fall of man came a curse, that he would have to work hard for it by the sweat of his brow. But God's design was made perfect. The problem with today's attitude is that retirement negates that integral aspect of God's very design. Additionally, it normalizes something that was never intended to be normal, not working. Now, even as some of you may be feeling deflated because you're near or at that age, I want to bring a peace offering, a different way of looking at retirement. Let's call it repurposement. You may have poured into Social Security your whole life and it may come time. But you know what? There may be a time that God is repurposing you to be working in ministry without pay. And that's really what quote-unquote retirement, I think, should be viewed at as a believer. It may sound cliche, but it's true. God is not done with you yet. You're here on this earth. He's got a job for you. You know, you've worked hard and, you know, you may be blessed and in a position where you don't have to work a nine to five. Great. But let's not relax, kick our feet back and say, I deserve this. I worked hard for 40 years, 50 years, whatever it may be. Say, God, how do you want me to be used? What work can I do that the world may be blessed by the working of my hands, by the labor of my hands? So again, I suggest that instead of seeing yourself as retired, that you see yourself as being able to bless others, you are repurposed. You know, when we steal, you're being selfish. When you work for your own pleasure and purposes, it's self-centered. But when we work so that we can be a blessing to others, that's the intention of God's design. You become selfless. That's the purpose. And so these three things are just a few examples of distinguishing marks of the believer that the world would see how we act, that they would begin to imitate and be drawn to us because we look and act differently than the Gentiles do. That is the culture, the world around us. These are distinguishing marks. So I want to leave us here with that this morning. Let us become attractive to the world, laying aside falsehoods, not lying and speaking, but rather we speak truth in love and that we would even in our anger, we would not sin. We would not let the sun go down upon it and that we would work with our hands so that we can give and be a blessing to the world. Let's pray.